The Talking Points podcast is produced in partnership with C. Michael Gibson and clinicaltrialresults.org. Hey, Mike Gibson coming to you live from ESC 2022, and I'm joined by Karthik, and we're talking about the Invictus trial, a look at rivaroxaban versus vitamin K antagonism. This is important in rheumatic, in rheumatic atrial fibrillation. So Karthik, talk to us a little bit about why you did it and what you did. So uh, rheumatic heart disease is pretty common. Actually, it's not there anymore in the West, but uh, it's, it's there in much of the developing world, a lot of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and in fact, even in some uh, pockets of rich countries like Australia and New Zealand, the Northern Territories in Australia and uh, the, among the Maoris and uh, Pacific uh, people in New Zealand, it's still got a very high uh, incidence and prevalence. So uh, this is somewhat of a neglected disease. You will know that uh, the first trials of atrial fibrillation, the anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation trials, they excluded rheumatic heart disease patients, specifically the ones with mitral stenosis, because at that time it was felt that they were at prohibitively high risks of stroke. So it was thought to be uh, not ethical to randomize these people. So they never were randomized. So all the data that we have for uh, anticoagulating these people are based on observational studies, which were uh, maybe done in the pre-echocardiographic era. And we've also extrapolated data from the uh, non-valvular AF trials, which, are, which have been pretty conclusive. So that's how, so all the treatment is empirical, basically. Uh, but as you know, uh, VKA therapy is quite complex in the sense that you need to monitor INR quite frequently. And in developing countries, it's, it's a little difficult. It's, uh, it's a bit of a challenge. And uh, most of the data suggests that people aren't able to maintain INRs. So it's about just about a third of people who are actually prescribed VKAs maintain an INR in the therapeutic range. So it's practically a very difficult treatment. So our reasoning was that if we were to use a drug which does not require monitoring, it would be a big advance for these patients. So that was the idea. That's a great idea. So talk to us a little bit about the design of uh, Invictus. So it's a, it's a simple design. So we thought that we should, uh, we, we considered BK a standard therapy because everybody uses it. So we said we do an open label non-inferiority trial uh, with blinded outcome assessment. And we recruited patients from all the RHD endemic regions of the world, Africa, South Asia, and Latin America. And uh, our primary outcome was, uh, initially it was stroke and systemic embolism, but uh, during the course of the study, we realized that the stroke rates were pretty much uh, low. They were much lower than anticipated. So we expanded the uh, uh, primary outcome to include uh, uh, death as well, death and MI. So this was done in the active W trial, which is also an atrial fibrillation trial. So we used that composite. Uh, and here we also included uh, unknown causes of death because uh, cause of death ascertainment is not very good in developing countries. So we said most of the uh, deaths are likely to be vascular. So we included all these patients. So our primary outcome turned out to be stroke systemic embolism. Uh, myocardial infarction and death due to vascular and unknown causes. So it's a 
pretty uh, unwieldy composite, but uh, that was the one that uh, ultimately gave us uh, the power. So the stroke outcomes were uh, just about half what we expected. So it wouldn't have been practical to continue the trial, just that as a primary outcome. I just want to make sure I confirm it was randomized. Although it's open label, it was randomized, correct? Uh, uh, I didn't get you. Uh, it was randomized, even though it's open label, it was randomized, correct? Yeah, it was. It was okay, uh, great. Yeah, randomized. And how many patients did you enroll? So we enrolled about 4,500 patients, so 4,531. Uh, uh, and how long did you follow them? How long was the follow-up? So the average follow-up was 3.1 years. And uh, overall, the study started in August 2016, and we recruited over a period of three years. And then we extended the follow-up during the COVID pandemic. And so ultimately, we uh, just closed the study. So we have, on the average, about 3.1 years of follow-up. And many patients had quite a lot of follow-up as well. So yeah. so. It, it was a tough study to do because uh, a lot of these countries, uh, there were local issues, uh, local war and things like that. And of course, there was a COVID pandemic as well. Right. So it was a bit of a challenge to complete the study. And uh, how many, you, you told us how many patients you enrolled. And, you know, I, I guess I was also wondering, you know, what was some of the concomitant therapies yeah. So, so remember that uh, we included patients who had echocardiographically proven rheumatic heart disease with documented atrial fibrillation or flutter. We also ensured that they at least had one additional uh, risk factor for stroke. And the two prominent ones were the presence of mitral stenosis, at least moderate mitral stenosis by the current definition, which is less than or equal to a valve area of two centimeters squared. And or uh, Chad's VASC score of uh, two or more. So these were the two prominent uh, additional inclusion criteria that we required. Of course, if patients had LA thrombus or uh, spontaneous echo contrast, they became eligible as well. So you uh, say stroke, Kartik, is that both ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke? Right, the okay. total stroke. So total oh, stroke sorry. is what uh, was involved. But we, uh, of course, adjudicated them as uh, ischemic uh, hemorrhagic where, wherever it was possible to do that. And what so, did you find? Uh, yeah, so uh, you were asking about the concomitant medication. So uh, yes. that's why I said the background. So these are patients, so 80% of them had mitral stenosis. And uh, as a result, many of these patients were already in heart failure. So more than a third of them were in heart failure. And... Uh, most of them uh, were getting uh, diuretics, about 85% were getting diuretics, and rate control medications like beta blockers or calcium channel blockers were almost a norm. And uh, about 45, 50% were on digoxin as well. So these are broadly the medicines that they were already on. So this is a pretty sick population in terms of heart failure. Sick, but on optimal medical management. Yes, that's what I was kind of driving at. And what did you find? So uh, the findings were very surprising to us. So uh, the headline result was that the primary composite of uh, the one that we described, stroke, systemic embolism, MI, or vascular, or unknown cause death, was significantly greater in the river oxidant arm than compared to PKA. So this was, the hazard ratio was uh, 1.25 with tight confidence that it was in a high p-value. But unfortunately, the 
capital Mayer curves crossed at about 18 months or 24 months. So the uh, proportional hazards assumption was not met. So we had to report the restricted mean survival time and the difference in the restricted mean survival time between the two. So uh, that's what we've reported in the paper. And uh, both the results were concordant uh, to be sure. So the hazard ratio uh, was consistently higher in the river oxaban arm and the RMST was consistently lower in the river oxaban arm. So, uh, and the outcome was primarily di driven by the uh, risk of death. So death was the primary driver of the uh, primary outcome. So death was higher in the river oxaban arm by about 25%. So uh, that was pretty surprising to us. And although the, uh, stroke or systemic embolism composite was not different between the two arms, the uh, ischemic stroke rates were significantly higher in the river when compared to the VK arm again. And the dose uh, was it the 20 milligram dose? Yeah, so uh, we used the 20 milligram uh, once daily dose in all patients, except those who had a, a creatinine clearance less than 50, in which we used a 15 ml dose. And uh, VK was any VK that was locally approved, and 85% of the time this was warfarin, and the remaining uh, percentage of time it was acinocumarol. And what about uh, the risk of bleeding? Uh, bleeding was pretty uncommon. So bleeding rates were quite uncommon uh, when compared to the uh, non-valvular AF trials. Uh, it was just about one-fourth or one-fifth of the bleeding rates that we saw, possibly because these were younger patients. There was no difference in major bleeding between the two arms. Uh, some small numerically, uh, uh, some uh, the numbers of fatal bleedings was slightly more in the uh, VK arm, but uh, overall the major bleeding rates were not different. Which is quite odd because you know in the non-rheumatic populations you see a nine percent lower mortality. Uh, for the NOACs compared to vitamin K antagonists, a lot of that driven by a reduction in ICH, which can often be fatal. So here you again see a little bit lower rate of, um, of fatal bleeds in the Reba arm. So then it's really kind of confusing. Why was the mortality higher in the Reba arm? What were these folks dying from? And is it a- Yeah, uh, so uh, so that's, that's the most, uh, that's, question that's been troubling us for a long time now. So the uh, issue is that most of these deaths were vascular deaths and a large proportion of them were uh, classified as deaths due to heart failure. And another large proportion uh, were sudden deaths, sudden cardiac deaths. And uh, the deaths due to stroke was just one eighth or one sixth to one eighth of uh, the death overall death rate. So death was about 8% per year and the stroke risk was about 1% per year. So uh, deaths were by, by far and large because of uh, heart failure or sudden cardiac death. So we really do not know uh, why this difference in uh, death happened. Uh, some uh, thoughts so were that- The results of you know one of the other trials with Rivaroxaban uh, where you know, they found in those patients with heart failure, there's actually a trend towards reduced mortality with Riva over placebo. 
So again, you know, it, it's an odd, uh, an odd point. We, we do not believe that uh, Riva is actually increasing death rates. I think there is something uh, which uh, is good about warfarin, which is actually, uh, or BKS, which is actually reducing the death rates. Because if you see the uh, overall mortality rate, uh, we did the uh, uh, the Remedy uh, registry, which which was another registry of rheumatic heart disease, where the mortality was about. Uh, 17% in two years. So the overall mortality that we've observed in Invictus is similar to that. So uh, there is no reason to suspect that mortality was increased. On the other hand, we would think that PK is somehow reduced mortality. And so we, we are trying to look at what the causes are. One of the explanations, which uh, there is not much of consensus between us on this, but uh, uh, we, uh, seeing patients with rheumatic heart disease who are in heart failure, uh, the BKA arm patients tended to have more healthcare contact in terms of uh, getting their INRs fixed, uh, doses adjusted. So one of the reasons could be, although we never documented these things as to what uh, medication changes, what other medication changes were done during these uh, uh, visits or telephone calls, that is something which could have contributed to better care in these patients. But unfortunately, this was not reflected in other metrics. Say, for example, the proportion of uh, uh, meta, say, digoxin or beta blockers or diuretics did not change between the two arms. And also, we did not see a difference in heart failure hospitalization between the two arms. So although that remains a possibility, but there is nothing to suggest that that was uh, uh, driving these results primarily. And could it have been spurious? I mean, given the small numbers that you had in the trial? Uh, could it have been spurious? Could it have been just play of chance, given the small numbers? No, no, not at all, because the uh, results are very robust, and it's a 25% uh, uh, difference, and it's uh, the p-value is quite low. And okay. How many uh, events How many events were there? So overall, there were 991 deaths. So deaths alone, the primary outcome events were more than 1,000. So uh, with 991 deaths, we can be pretty sure that there was a real difference in mortality. The only thing is we need to explain this difference in mortality. Uh, uh, and also there was one uh, important observation uh, that the deaths, the difference in deaths, or even in the primary outcome started emerging after about 18 months or so. And then it became statistically significant towards the three-year mark. So before that, uh, Rivaroxone was actually better. That's where the curves crossed. Uh, I had to, uh, I, I forgot to mention that uh, the INR control, like we expect in developing countries, was pretty bad at the beginning, at the time of enrollment. So the proportion of INRs in range was about 33%, which is what is expected in the real world. And it climbed to about 65% by the end of two years. And this somewhat coincided with the time at which the curves crossed over. But we could explain differences in stroke based on that, but not on uh, uh, not the differences in death. So it's it's it still remains a conundrum to us as to why deaths are really so different. Uh, we when we looked at the literature, we actually found that the uh, WARCEF trial, which looked at uh, heart failure patients, DCM and heart failure. But they were not in AF, uh, where the comparison was between uh, VK and uh, aspirin. They, although the uh, uh, overall trial results were null, uh, they actually showed a progressive uh, 
uh, reduction in uh, reduction in uh, overall composite, which was again driven by mortality, uh, not stroke, in that population. And uh, uh, by about the four-year mark, actually there was a significant difference uh, between BKA and aspirin to in uh, towards as uh, towards VKA. So again, that was not driven by stroke; it was driven by uh, mortality. So right. it has been seen before, and uh, uh, it's probably escaped our attention so far. So uh, this is something which is exciting because warfarin is a cheap drug and it's already in use. And if, if it turns out that it has some potential to reduce mortality in rheumatic heart disease, it would be a major breakthrough. So uh, thanks for joining us, Karthik. And uh, thanks for a little bit of a deep dive. We look forward to an even deeper deep dive. Uh, to try and piece all the results together. But thanks for sharing today. And thanks to all of you for joining us here live from ESC 2022. Thank you. Mm -hmm.